and welcome to RT Radio 1's The Rolling Wave podcast with me, Aoife Nick In this episode, we'll be talking about the relationships and connections between jazz and traditional music in Ireland in the early 20th century with my guest, musician and lecturer in music in the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance in the University of Limerick, Dr. Connor Caldwell. When the cattle are prowling and the coyotes are howling out under the western sky, the cowboy is singing, his spurs are a jingling as down the trail he Connor, that was the band fiddle playing a tune called Alec McConnell's Waltz, a tune um, that you talk about as being adapted into the Donegal tradition from the song Cattle Call, sung there by American singer Tex Owens. And that recording, I think, was from 1943. Um, it's a brilliant example of music travelling and being adapted into the to the local repertoire wherever it lands. And that's kind of the topic that you're here to talk about today and that you've been looking at over the past while is the, the development of and I suppose relationships between jazz and traditional music. And you're looking particularly at the period from 1916 to 1945. So before we get into the particulars of that time period, what brought you <laughs> to this topic in the first place? I suppose like like any research that, that I get interested in, it all comes from lifting the fiddle and hearing a piece of music that sounds interesting that you want to play that you want to try and learn um and yeah so i was going through archival recordings of old donegal fiddle players which is the thing i'm most interested in i wrote my phd about john doherty and started to recognize all these strange tunes that i had previously just glossed past because i was looking for the jigs and the reels and the highlands and mazurkas and just realized that there was about a quarter of this big archival recording gathered by alan evans that uh that yeah has has these tunes that I didn't realize what the origin of them were. Some of them were in the the I guess in the the vernacular tradition, like they're tunes that we play in sessions. But lots of them had just been forgotten, had been bypassed by other musicians as well. So set off on this journey to try and understand where they came from and how they ended up in, in our hands today. And you know we'll be listening to some of those uh, musicians and uh, some of those tunes during the course of this interview, but. And obviously your interest is particularly with Donegal fiddle players, but they did incorporate a lot of these tunes into their repertoire. Why Why do you think in particular in Donegal they were they were doing that? It's, it's hard for me to say, you know, it's it's a variety of circumstances. Uh, and I think that's probably one of the most fascinating things that I learned through this research was I think when we look back at Ireland in this period, we have a, a tendency to look at it as a homogenous space, you know, and we look at it through the question of national identity and so on. But there are lots of regional identities and circumstances are different in every part of Ireland. So uh, if one enterprising person opens a dance hall 
to make a few quid it follows then that certain type of music might flow there whereas if there's no initiative uh, no parallel initiative in, in another place then that culture won't flow there so uh, yeah, I think that was probably one of the big conclusions to, to the research that I did was that you know it's that regional difference in, in lots of different parts of the country uh, and, and trying to draw parallels and connections then between these regions which developed uh, along the same lines and then the, contrast them with, with those that went a different direction Okay well I think we will be talking about a, a dance hall in, in Thielen uh, later on but let's first set the scene for the, the period you looked at. You, you began in 1916 but what was the music scene like in Ireland you know before that before the First World War? Yeah I'm always drawn to a reference that, of Martin Dowling's in his, his great book about Irish music and he talks about this Victorian pop culture soup um, which I think is a great <laughs> a great quote. Um, it's just a, a mix of so many things that you know there, there's the remnants of Gaelic Ireland still in the piping and what's left of the harping tradition at that time you know there's quadrilles and lancers which are the the big popular dance of the late 19th century and then ballroom really starts to come to the fore as well and we start to see the the music that's initially performed by light orchestras in in quote-unquote polite society in Dublin and Belfast and Cork and so on uh, filter out into the rural areas so uh, specific tunes that are uh, pieces of classical music I suppose which are composed in the late 19th century find their their way into into rural repertoires and there's this whole interconnectivity between rural Ireland and the city which uh, I think when we start to peel the onion back you really see that it's not quite as simple as a division between the Anglo-Irish elite and the the poor rural peasants but that there are a lot of connections because people from rural Ireland are coming into the city they're maybe working in in, in situations in, in as I don't know cooks or waiters or as carriage drivers and they're getting experience to the culture of the elite and they take it back and interpret in their in their own manner in their in their own communities the war then because obviously the the first world war there was mass movement of people you know did all that change change musical tastes here then yeah i think the really exciting thing looking at this particular period uh is is how rapidly it happened so if you look at uh, influences on Irish traditional music in the 19th century everything's quite slow you know new music arrives it has to come into as I say Dublin or Belfast and become established there it has to get into the ears of people who take it back to their own communities and all this takes time and there's not really a great deal of musical uh, of music literacy in terms of being able to read collections and so on so, so so that kind of process of change is slow throughout the 19th century but the the I suppose the rapid nature of this change in and around the First World War is is really uh, drastic. You know, it's it's a case of yes, individuals learning music and taking it back from their travels in the war, but you also have then the arrival in the twenties of of radio of seventy eights of I suppose wax cylinders a little bit before that as well, and I think what's interesting in the context of that first example that you played, you know we're starting to see for the first time an easterly migration of music and culture from the States. So in the previous century, everything had been going westwards with European immigrants going. But now as those communities become established, people are able to move back uh, and signals are being, radio signals, for example, are, are able to be broadcast from the United States. So by the time the 20s and 30s rolled around, you could be sitting in your house in Galway or Donegal and you could actually get a radio signal from New York or from New Jersey. And I think there, there's a real development in the imagination of Irish people about what America is at that point because you have people listening to to the same radio programs as uh, relatives who emigrated 20 or 30 years before that they've perhaps not seen and I think that that creates a real connection in, in, in even amongst that distance you know um, so yeah th- there's a lot going on I mean that that first example there's a Polish musician who composed that piece who emigrated to, to uh, the east coast of the United States. He composed this waltz for dancing that was taken up by Texans and um, uh, and integrated into this song that he composed that became a chart topper. 
and landed its way back through maybe a member of the family or local community in, in Donegal there who uh, came back from the States and, and taught it in the local area. And the fact then that it's been lodged with that name Alec McConnell's and sort of just camouflaged into the local scene, second part adapted from maybe another piece of music or from thin air. That I find that whole process really fascinating. Yeah, it's a fascinating journey for a melody to go on, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so so then, and, and just, just to be clear, so you're talking about jazz and traditional music, but, but jazz in this context, are you covering sort of um, music for dancing? Or what are you covering? What is jazz? Jazz. <laughs> Come back a, to you in an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, jazz does a lot of heavy lifting okay, uh, in yeah. this period. And, and that's not just, you know, my imposition of that word. That's the word that was used by everybody at the time to basically describe any type of music that wasn't jigs, reels or hornpipes or classical music. Everything else was jazz. Uh, so it becomes a loaded term. It becomes a term that's used um, in a pejorative sense by particularly politicians and, and members of the, the church uh, who, who see this music as informing a kind of moral corruption at the time and particularly around the corruption of young women. And uh, there are a lot of public pronouncements against this jazz music by all sorts of organisations who have... Uh, you know, who are high on uh, on the kind of power power structures. The GEA gets involved in this discussion. So, official Ireland is uh, is very offended by this by the arrival of of quote unquote jazz music. Um, but at the same time, there are a lot of public documents which illustrate that they find it very difficult to define what this was. And there are minutes of council meetings where they're actually having this. Could you tell me what this jazz music is? And oh, well, I don't really know. Should we get some uh, get a musician in to play it for us and uh, and let us know what it is that we're supposed to be offended about? You know, yeah. so um, it's interesting to see you know how how some of those things map onto our society today as well. You know, it's often people who are angry about things in society maybe haven't actually engaged with what those those aspects of culture are. You know. have some fantastic uh, musical examples here. I mean, I'm going to get to play Barbara Windsor on the rolling wave, which is which is brilliant. <laughs> but um, Irish musicians, I mean, we, you talked about uh, or we, we heard the, the track from Fiddle there at the start, but going back a bit, um, Irish musicians, how did they interact with this new music? Because it's a natural instinct for musicians to just inhale whatever they hear and, and make it their own. Was that happening? And, and you might introduce then uh, some of these tracks that you uh, brought in for us, for example, um, Oh, listen to the band. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that openness is is another thing that really comes through when, when you look at the testimony and the the actions of musicians in that early part of the century. And that's something that we maybe have lost a little bit that we've we've we've, I think, built up barriers around the tradition a little bit and that we may want to protect it from some of these outside influences today but you know the word traditional didn't exist in this context it was just music and you hear you listen to you know interviews of John Doherty or, or older musicians of that period and they they just don't have that word in their lexicon so I think there's that openness to play anything to an extent you know th th there's a motivation towards if you're a professional musician you want to play what people want to dance to you know that's how you're going to get paid for a night's work and uh, and so they are open to the to these new ideas. So you know you have pieces like uh, "Oh, Listen to the Band," which is a really interesting example. It comes up in a ostensibly a, a Victorian sort of um, 
ballad opera type of piece and then is reconstituted time and time again it's arranged for the temperance band movement of the time which was it was a very popular piece amongst uh temperance bands and then the 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 single the, the big single um soldiers on parade it gets it gets released on uh on 78 rpm and gets played on the radio and spread about and eventually we end up with this barbara windsor uh, recording which i think is uh, an amazing moment that i think that's actually recorded in the 1950s but very much reflective of of what people people were listening to so i suppose we have to think of these songs as being widely popular popular uh, across all sections of society uh, and the music was new and exciting people hadn't had the opportunity to listen to pieces of music that had this much arrangement and you know this many kind of sections an interesting thing too is fiddle players had to or not just fiddle players but all musicians around the country had to find a way to make this cohere with what their idea of a dance tune was which is it has eight bars in the first part and eight bars in the second part and if a piece has three sections of music you have a problem um so they went about solving this in lots of different ways where they would uh they would basically delete the the c section of the music and concentrate on the a and b parts and make them into coherent tunes uh which you know finished on the right note and started on the right note and did the things that were relevant for dancers to enjoy a night a night on the floor uh, you mentioned uh, Barbara Windsor and the Temperance Bands, but there, John, Johnny Darty had a, a version of that, or has a version of that, or oh, listen to the band as well. Yeah, so, um, and that's a, a bit of a mystery as to whether he picked this up from the Temperance Bands, which to me was my original theory. There was a, a, a big Temperance Band in Glenty's, in Doherty's Youth, and another one in Bally Buffet. It was, it was a big movement all around County Donegal, so it's likely that he would have heard it on the streets, you know, on, on fair days and, and, and different parades, but that he also could have encountered it through the radio later on and through uh, and through recordings. So yeah, his version does basically what I described before. There's a there's a C section in this piece and it's erased. Um, it just concentrates on the A and the B part and, and it really snaps into something that looks like a traditional tune. <laughs> Another one that he has is um, Colonel Bogey. Tell me about Colonel Bogey. There's a great story with Colonel Bogey, uh, not least that the composer finished bottom of his class for march writing in the in the British Army. Like so, there's there's hope for us all. You know, it's <laughs> one of the most iconic military marches of the the 20th century. It has you know second and third lives through movies like um, Bridge on the River Kwai and so on. So it comes back in different generations. And the interesting thing about how they constructed that was. The B section in, in the original composition of Colonel Bogey, which was written during the First World War, it uh, 
it doesn't really make sense to a, to a traditional musician's ear. It's sort of motivic. It has little small sections of notes, but not really a discernible melody. So they just grabbed the first section um, and played that. And then they stitched on a part of a quadrille, which they already had in the local repertoire, again, to make something which has a first part and a second part and a definite start and a definite ending. So that kind of um, adaptability that the musicians had on the fly to, I suppose, take tunes into the repertoire that the dancers recognised and wanted to dance to, uh, particularly the younger crowd of people who were emerging in that period. Uh, but also there's a sense of appealing to the older community as well who who uh, would have known the B section uh, and, and that tune might have been played for 50 or 60 years in the local area before. So there's incredible um, ingenuity and creativity going on there. <laughs> have recordings of some of these and they're fantastic as we've been hearing but there are tunes as well that you you think were were played or you have you have discovered were played but there are no recordings of the tr- the traditional <laughs> the traditional versions of them we're for doing example we're a lot of quote marks in the studio here <laughs> <am I? laughs> if only we had the screen you know the camera but uh, a traditional version of yes we have no bananas for example tell me about this you you think that that was a tune in the traditional musicians' repertoire. Yeah, well, it's specifically named by a number of musicians. Uh, I first encountered it again with a uh, the great, I think it's 1968 documentary that UTV made about him, uh, Fiddler on the Road. And there's a lovely section at the end where he's basically given his reminiscences of, uh, of his youth. And he talks specifically about 1916 as being a turning point in which jazz and one step, as he says, started to come into the country. So he names several pieces and this is one of them. Uh, along with another song called uh, Oh Johnny, Oh Johnny O, oh, a great title. Uh, and yeah, and basically explains that they had to they had to learn those because that's what people wanted to dance. And it's interesting, you know, I sort of enthusiastically latched on to this and then I was speaking to a friend of mine, uh, Mick Brown, who pointed out that the the language that Doherty uses uh, in the in this particular bit of speech is, is quite melancholy as well. You know, he, he mentioned something about, you know, that's what we had to do, you know, to, mm. to, to continue on as professional musicians. So it's not necessarily how I took it at first as like this kind of joyful grabbing of new music always, but that they recognised that there was a commercial necessity to doing this. Um, and and suppose they had an impact then on, on, on how music progressed in, 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 well, they had quite a wide travelling area at that stage. But uh, yeah, so yes, we have No Bananas. It was a massively popular song at the time has been recorded dozens of times as far as I can see uh, and again another piece of music that has three sections but what's interesting about these songs which might come under the the title of um of, of sort of like light jazz or sweet jazz uh, that very often the fiddle players I think would have started with the chorus again the hook that everybody knew and then picked uh what picked the tune of the verse as the b part and if there was a counter melody somewhere in the middle, that was dismissed again. So the C section is always scrubbed out the door. And so you end up then with this, uh, well, I, I imagine, I've tried to imagine how it would have sounded in, in the dance halls of the time. And uh, and I've been trying to play it for a few people to, to get their <laughs> their feedback, you know. Well, you have a fiddle with you now, so are, are you, would you give me a go here? I will, certainly, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So just for the record, Connor Caldwell is going to play us the tune version of Yes, We Have No Bananas. <laughs> 
gorgeous. <laughs> well done. Thanks a million. Um, moving back to Dublin for a minute. When when did the first jazz club open in Dublin or when did the culture of, of jazz in Dublin become sort of embedded? Again, it's around the time of the First First World War and there are competing newspaper articles at the time, you know, which say that this was the first jazz event or that was the first jazz event. But there are a few things which coalesced around the, the same time. Um we know that there was jazz music played or jazz teas provided for in the the famous uh, Cafe Cairo on Grafton Street where the, the, the British agents used to hang out um, at the time. And I found n- numerous other advertisements, uh, you know, for, for events taking place around kind of the greater Dublin area, which, which say jazz tea with um, high class music. And, and this is something that comes up time and time again, that there's an idea that this jazz music is going to be some sort of a successor or sit um, hand in glove with ballroom that it really is a high class music for high class people and it'll cost a lot to get in uh, to, to the to the various dances and then around the time of the the end of the first world war you have the um, American bands so American units are stationed in Ireland and you see reports of at the various victory balls and parties that these American uh, units had jazz bands and and they played for the for the the delight of the the, the local people dancing uh, interestingly then you start to see a bit of synergy between there's a famous Dublin band under the baton of uh, John Clark Barry who I think were more of a ballroom type um sort of like classical music band but they were alternating pieces with an American um, American army band at one particular dance so you can see then that musicians in the ballroom tradition would have been quickly exposed to the types of arrangements and pieces that, that were coming over from the states at that time so yeah I mean it takes off uh, takes off very quickly um, and a lot of this is to do with ordinary soldiers as well who had now been through the streets of Paris and the streets of Brussels and other smaller cities around Belgium and France and of course had uh, definitely at some stage anyone who went to the trenches in the First World War was in London at some point so when they arrive back in Ireland you know there's that tendency like anyone has had when they're abroad for a period to go well why can't I do that cool thing that <laughs> you know that I did over there uh, and so you start to see lots of applications go into to establish jazz clubs and um, people using their military credentials as well that's an important part of it to to, to gain licenses so you know if you had a an honorable discharge from the military at, at the end of the war that opened a lot of doors for people um, one fiddle player you mentioned in in your research as well as Tommy Potts the Dublin fiddle player and um you know, people often say that they hear a jazz influence on in his say, in his playing and in his improvisations. Do you think that's true? And do you think that's where he that's where it came from the the music in in the city at the time? Yeah, it's it's a complex one. Um, I I, I take a, I suppose a bit of a position on this that uh, so Potts when he's interviewed by Michal Soloin in the seventies or eighties he. I think he he denies that that he was influenced by jazz music, and he gives a little um, noodle of a of a piece of jazz music, and he says it's a great line. He says that wasn't my psychology, um, to play jazz music. So a lot of those uh, insertions that he has in his reels and jigs, they come from Western art music uh, as opposed to jazz music. But I I I consider that. I'm not sure it would have been possible for Potts to grow up in the period that he did and not be exposed in a passive way to this as the sound of the city streets of of formal occasions uh, of music on the radio and so on and so i think some of that improvisatory quality that's in his music arguably comes from that that idea that there's a, a theme in the tune uh, as you get in jazz music but you can play around with this and uh, and it's still it's still a tune um you have lots of interesting points in in your uh, writing and in your research that you know 
deserve whole programmes on their own. Um, but one of them is because you're talking you're talking during this period of a, of a whole change in the way that people accessed music and played music. Um, and you bring in the Dance Halls Act from 1935. And that's an act that people often talk about as being responsible for putting an end, you know, to the traditional house dances. But you have a slightly different view on that. You think that was happening anyway, even before the Dance Halls Act uh, was uh, implemented. Tell yeah, me about that. Yeah, I I suppose I've come to see the Dance Halls Act as a as a very late reaction to to the way that society had already changed in you know for maybe as far as two decades or as long as two decades before that so if we know that jazz music was coming in in 1916 um i suppose my conclusion is that younger people did in this period what younger people always do which is they for for a time reject the culture of the, of their parents generation and they want to find their own thing which rebels somewhat against the 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 orthodoxy of the previous generation so by the time the dance halls act comes in in 1935 you know my argument is that the horse is bolted here you know um that that traditional music is already traditional music as we describe it today as we know it today is already very much on the wane and this leads you know to 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 that dark period of the 40s and 50s where you have the likes of you know, uh, Tommy Peoples, not too long after that, is born and, you know, he moves to Dublin without a fiddle. You know, there's no sense that this music outside of its rural um, sort of uh, catchment area is relevant in a big city. Uh, so I think that, that, that there, there are a lot of things going on in Irish society, but but one is just a very simple, active decision by young people to to embrace another, another type of musical culture and to want to do dances like the Foxtrot and the One Step and... Uh, the Charleston and these other very um, simple by comparison dances that that are popular not just in Ireland at the time but in London and the States and in continental Europe uh, which outcompete highlands and barn dances and waltzes and you know the figure dances that that previous generations ha- had embraced I, I think again you know it's important to stress the regionality of all of this so it's not uniform you know house dances to traditional dances are going on in parts of southwest Donegal into the 40s and 50s unabated you know in, in the blue stacks and places like that but Junior Crehan talks about the dance halls act and, and that period being a catastrophic end of you know the passing on of tradition like the robbing of of people of their kind of their 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 place their palace of tradition where people could meet and talk about these things in the proper context so people move into the dance halls the government is happy i suppose because it's being seen to do something the church now has something that that uh you know they can bring money into the, the parish coffers uh private dance hall uh owners are again i suppose on the economic bandwagon as far as this is concerned and in this period as well, you start to see a lot of, um, I suppose, subterfuge. Uh, so there, if you host a quote-unquote Irish dance in this period, there's no tax. Uh, so you can call your dance a Cayley, but you don't necessarily have to play Cayley dances because no one's really coming to regulate it. So you start to see um, enterprise and <laughs> parish priests in particular say, Night of Irish dancing Cayley, and maybe the first dance is an old, uh, an Irish dance. And very quickly they they move on to the contemporary stuff. So uh, there are always ways around these things, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. if the will is there. Um, yeah, Junior Cree, and I think he has that line. I thought it was a, it's quite a powerful line that closed our the dance halls act closed our schools of tradition, which is um, which says a lot, I suppose, for the, for what how he was affected in his area or how his area was affected. Um, another you, you mentioned the dance the dance halls and uh, Cassidy's dance hall uh, Frank Cassidy and he has a, a gorgeous tune that's on a CD of his uh, beautiful Ohio which I'd heard before tell me about uh, that dance hall and about this tune and we'll we'll give it a listen so uh, Cassidy's dance hall was built 
literally out of the leftovers of World War One in Ireland. Um, they managed to get themselves down to Bondoran to the Finner camp, which was a US base during the war, and they took back materials that had been used to construct the the huts that the army lived in and built this dance hall. And it was quite, I think, quite early in terms of being a private dance hall in, in Ireland at the time. And Beautiful Ohio was one of the pieces that would have been played there. It was probably, uh, you know, forgotten after a period, but Frank Cassidy played it for, for Seamus Ennis years later. And uh, Cardus Navigli made that available to us um, in, in recent times. It's it's one of the few tunes that Cassidy played on the recordings for Ennis, which wasn't wasn't Irish. Uh, and again, it's sort of adapted from this idea that there are three sections of music within the, the original composition. The chorus is taken as the A part, the verse is taken as the B part, and we, we disregard the, the C section. Dreaming in a paradise of love divine Dreaming of a pair of eyes that looked in mine Beautiful Ohio in dreams again I see spoke earlier about the the differing attitudes to jazz um amongst say uh, the you know those in charge let's say in in the south in particular um but that dynamic of the attitude the state's attitude towards jazz is is quite interesting isn't it at that period yeah um you you start to see uh, different attitudes emerge in the two states so after after 1922 um i suppose the irish government is concerned with this idea of Ir- irishifying or gallicizing the country and you know we, we we get to the idea of the comely maidens at the crossroads and and all that sort of stuff uh so the state uh favors i suppose cultural elements which are which are innately irish or which they determine are, are innately irish and we'd already been through this you know 30 years before with the the gaelic league and the Cayleys and so on in london and the prescribing of um highlands and barn dances but this this process sets about itself again so yeah through um it's various uh levers of power the state denounces jazz whether that's the church whether that's the the government whether that's local power brokers whether that's the gea uh, and together all of these uh, constituents are trying to uh, constituencies I suppose, are, are trying to to push forward an idea of an of an irish island an irish ireland excuse me so uh so jazz doesn't fit into that uh, and it's very much seen as a corrupting uh influence but if you contrast that with what happened in in the north that very quickly um, official Britain or the official UK begins to embrace jazz again on this idea that it's a polite music it's something that's going to succeed uh, ballroom dancing very early on you have the royal family going to Australia on a tour and taking for the first time uh, a sousaphone player which enabled them to play jazz music so very much placing jazz music as part of what we do as an as an establishment you have churches um, in England in particular which are are inviting jazz bands to play as part of their services. And the newspaper reports say that they had to put more seats in the aisles because so many people wanted to come to church when the jazz band was playing. Um, again, just in conversation with other people since I've 
uh, been presenting this research, I, I had someone give me some comments about how this might be slightly different in, in some of the more evangelical churches in the North. So the Presbyterian Church and the Methodists may have had similar attitudes to, to the church in the South, uh, but they weren't really the political power brokers as much at the time, I, I think, as the established church, which obviously, you know, um, had a big sway and, and is, um, yeah, and is officially a part of the political hegemony in, in the UK. So, uh, yeah, you, you see jazz embraced by polite society. And there are there are funny things which um, which take place at, at the various public dances. So you have uh, one instance, it's, uh, Barbara O'Connor writes about it in her book. And she says that uh, at, at one Kate, or one dance that there was a, a Protestant man who, who was very much uh, keen to dance the Irish jig uh, every time he went out. But the Gaelic leaguers refused to dance the jazz dances at this. Uh, so the Protestant man in protest said that he wasn't going to dance the Irish jig anymore, you know, and it's the North in a nutshell, really, like, you know, so... Um, <laughs> So there, there definitely are diverging attitudes towards jazz in in the official um attitudes of the, the the attitudes of the of the uh, the state or the official power brokers. Um, we're going to end with a tune which is La Marseillaise, which is the the French national anthem, which isn't a, a tune I thought I'd be again playing on the <laughs> rolling wave ever. Tell me about this tune and how it made its way into the repertoire of Concasti. Yeah, um, I mean, it's a little bit difficult to say, but I, I mean, I suppose one of the things about the Marseillaise is that it it's part of a, a dance genre called a Carmignol, uh, which is referenced, I think, in the tale of two cities, um, that this was a popular dance in France. So like a lot of national anthems, it, it emerges from folk culture and becomes established. Uh, you know, in the early part of the, the 20th century, there aren't that many countries in the world that actually have a national anthem. So all these things are, uh, all these tunes and songs can be played with, you know, there's permission to play with them. So uh, one angle I had was that this was just a, a well-known song that was played on the radio. But more recently, I discovered that there are recordings of uh, Django Reinhardt playing this with, I think, Stefan Grappelli and playing it as a sort of a uh, jazz Im- improvised piece using the, the various themes from the Marseillaise. So, um, I, I, and this is an important thing to say about why the Marseillaise and, and a lot of these other tunes became popular. They, they had intrinsically uh, very basic musical properties they're played at about 120 beats per minute they're in 4-4 and they're absolutely perfect for dancing the foxtrot and the one step and, and these this new wave of popular dances uh, and I suppose like melodically speaking they were quite easy to pick out um, again compared to say Dixieland jazz which was much more improvisatory so possi- there's a possible a possibility that it came from some of these early jazz ensembles that would have been heard on the radio and, and that the Cassidys and others uh, picked the tune out from there <laughs>
you gave this talk or a version of this talk um, at Skullsari, uh, Willie Clancy this year. Uh, have you plans to do it again or have you anything else on the calendar? Uh, well, there were a few a few talks in that run. So I did the Francis Roach lecture, lecture at the uh, Blast Festival in Limerick. And I also gave the talk at the Glencon Kill Summer School and at Belfast Trad Fest. So I'm probably talked out uh, at this stage <laughs> where people are probably fed up listening uh, listening about this. But um, yeah, I mean, there, there are other plans. I'm working on a recording at the minute, which is my interpretation of some of this music, along with Ryan Malloy and a couple of other musicians. So I'll be hoping to release that uh, next year. And uh, I'm hoping to write up some of the findings of this in, in, a, in a publication as well. So uh, no, no more presentations, as it were, on the cards at the minute. But um yeah a few other ideas to come out of it well it's a fascinating uh, topic and um, thank you for the opportunity to play all this music and thanks a million for coming into the rolling wave today thanks very much and thanks to you for listening to the rolling wave podcast for rights reasons the music here is shorter than in the original broadcast so if you'd like to hear the full versions of the tracks you can go to rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash the rolling wave and this program was first broadcast on the 5th of november 2023 good day and hey there ella gurumila mahagi agaslan